Turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 22. This morning we'll be looking at verses 31 through 38. For those that have been recently joining us, we're in the, towards the end of a series, The Certainty of the Savior, the Gospel of Luke. And if we really wanted to subtitle this last section for the semester, will be The Passion of Christ. As we see everything that's taking place is moving him towards his work on the cross on our behalf. Luke chapter 22, beginning in verse 31, out of reverence and respect for God and His Word, please stand for the reading of Scripture. Beginning in verse 31, Jesus is addressing Peter. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. And he said to them, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? And they said, nothing. He said to them, but now let the one who has money bag take it and likewise a knapsack. And let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, it's enough. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that you be pleased to strengthen us by your grace. Uphold us by your word of truth and transform us, we pray, through the ministry of your word and spirit. Grant us, we pray, that strength and resolve to live for your glory alone. And when you continue to hold us by your gracious grip upon our lives, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Many people have been deeply moved and encouraged with the writings of Gordon MacDonald. He has written several books, Ordering Your Private World, The Efficient Father, Magnificent Marriage. I remember in 1986 teaching a Sunday school class in our old building on Highway, 80, Highway 76, heading towards Anderson, on Ordering Your Private World. I've been greatly encouraged by his life and by his writings in many ways. Billy Graham said of one of his books. It struck me right between the eyes with conviction, and I wish that I had read it many years earlier. Another prominent Christian leader said, he's the most godly man I know. He was the pastor of the largest church in New England. He taught at a nearby seminary, and in 1987, he became the president of InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. In 1985, he became the president. But two years later, he announced his resignation. The reason given, an adulterous relationship years earlier. The announcement of his fall from grace shocked his family, his wife, and the Christian community. Years earlier, Gordon MacDonald was traveling on an airplane, and somebody asked him, where do you think Satan would try to get you in your life? And Gordon MacDonald thought for a moment, and he said, I suppose in many ways and in many places, but I know one area in which he will not get me. What was that, he asked. And he said, in my family life, 
in the arena of my relationships, for that's where I am the strongest. And yet within a matter of months after that conversation, he fell into an adulterous relationship. He said this later, a few years after that conversation, my world broke wide open. A chain of seemingly innocent choices became destructive, and it was my fault. Choice by choice by choice, each easier to make, each becoming gradually darker, and then my world broke. In the very area I predicted, I was safe. You know, an overestimation of oneself and an underestimation of the enemy is a sure formula for failure. The incident in the life of Gordon McDonald serves as a sobering reminder, really, for all of us of what Jesus is teaching here in this passage. The enemy often targets spiritual leaders in Christ's church. I was just asked if I thought this was the case this past Friday, and here we see it in this text. On the heels of the disciples boasting about who was the greatest, Jesus offers this sober warning to Simon Peter. Simon, Simon, Satan has demanded to have you. He's demanded you to sift you like wheat. Simon, Satan desires to own you, to destroy you, to discard you like chaff, useless in the ministry. Here's Peter. He's the spokesman of the twelve, one of the inner circles in Jesus' ministry, the one who first declared, Jesus, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Here we see Peter being warned about his weakness, being reminded that Satan has a demonic bullseye on his back. But it wasn't just Peter who was the object of Satan's scorn. When Jesus says, Simon, Satan desires to have you and to sift you, he uses the plural, you all. He desires to bring all the disciples down because he knows that when he does that, he can bring down the church. He's targeted the leaders. He wants to destroy them, to discard them, to devour them. And we need to understand that Satan's appetite is insatiable. In C.S. Lewis' book, The Screwtape Letter, Screwtape ends a letter to Wormwood this way, your increasingly ravenously affectionate uncle. Satan will never be satisfied until he can deceive and destroy and devour not only the leaders, but every believer in Christ. He despises, he hates the church, and he goes particularly after the leaders. He's on the prowl seeking to devour whom he may will. But like Gordon MacDonald, Peter went on to declare with self-confidence, I know where Satan won't get me. He will not get me, Jesus, in my allegiance to you. I'm willing to follow you to prison. I'm willing to die for you. And yet, in a matter of hours, we see his failure. Phil Riken called this the Titanic of testimonies. Peter was often impetuous. He was impulsive. He was self-confidence, trusting in his own strength. But what he found, and what we find as well, is trusting in our own strength is no match for the evil one. In fact, self-confidence 
and spiritual pride make us the easier of his targets. But there's also another warning in the life of Peter, and is this. Proximity to Jesus is no guarantee of protection from the evil one. Proximity to him, closeness to him, is no guarantee that Satan won't come after us. In fact, it's just the opposite. The closer the communion, the closer the union, the closer the fellowship, it attracts the attacks of the evil one all the more. And so we're reminded in Scripture to be on the alert, to not overestimate ourselves or underestimate the evil one, but to be aware that Satan despises the church, that he despises you, and that in particular, Satan is pursuing spiritual leaders. Let me encourage you to to pray for the spiritual leaders of your church, to pray for heads of homes, that God might protect us and that God might be pleased to honor his son through us in the midst of great temptation. We also see in this passage of Scripture that the enemy opposes the kingdom mission of Christ's church as well. In verse 35, Jesus continues to address his disciples, and he's actually referring back to something that took place in chapter 9. You remember in chapter 9, Jesus sent his disciples out on a short-term missions project, and he said, don't take your money bags, don't take your purse, don't take money, don't take any food. Why? Because you're going to be warmly greeted, you're going to be warmly welcomed by the people to whom you minister, and through their generosity and through their hospitality, God will provide for you. However, things are going to be different from here on out. Did you notice what he says as they're reflecting back on the mission in verse 35? Did you lack anything? Nothing, they said. God provided for us through this generosity and hospitality of the people, but things are going to be different. Look at verse 36. Now Jesus reminds us of how it's going to be different from here on out. He said to them, but now let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack. And let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. What is Jesus saying? In your previous mission, you were warmly welcomed, but it's not going to be the case any longer. You're not going to be able to depend on the generosity and hospitality of the people because you're not going to be warmly greeted. In fact, the persecution has become so intense, you need to be ready to strap on your sword. You need to take your own provisions. You know, in the wake of violence in our culture, as the news media has reported it, many people have felt the need to to take up arms, to be ready to protect themselves. And there's certainly a place in which we need to be able to defend ourselves when people seek us physical harm. But I do not believe this is what Jesus had in mind when he mentioned the sword to his disciples here. In fact, some have even taken this text and and tried to validate the use of physical violence and force to advance the kingdom of God. But a literal reading of the word sword here would go against much of what Jesus has previously taught about how we're to treat our enemies and how the church is to be advanced and how the kingdom of God is to be advanced in this fallen world. In fact, later in the same passage, impetuous Peter took a literal sword, we'll read of it in a few weeks, and he cut off the ear of the high priest's servant. And Jesus said, enough of this! And he touched that servant's ear and he healed him. Later on in this same passage, as it concludes, as we read a few minutes ago, the disciples didn't understand what Jesus was saying about the sword. And he said, look, here are two swords, they said. And Jesus said, that's enough. 
Uh, enough of this kind of talk. Now, Jesus isn't encouraging his followers to take up literal swords, to arm themselves for the advancement of the kingdom of God, to slay our spiritual enemies, but rather he's speaking metaphorically. He's reminding them through vivid illustration of the sword that we are about to enter into a battlefield of real spiritual warfare. It would be very equivalent when he says, strap on your sword to us saying, buckle your chin strap. He's using it metaphorically to remind them that, look, you're going to need a sword, not the comforts of a fine coat. Get ready. The opposition towards the kingdom of God is going to be intense. It's going to be fierce. And you need to be prepared for the spiritual warfare that is ahead of you. Paul used the same language in writing the church in Ephesus when he wrote in chapter 6, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. And Paul is addressing not just the spiritual leaders of the church, he is addressing all the members of the church to buckle your chin, tra chin trap, to, to put on the full armor of God, to be aware that you're about to engage in real spiritual warfare. Jay Adams in his book, The War Within, writes this. Members of the Lord's army are strewn all over the battlefield of life these days. But many do not even realize they are at war. Do you realize that? As a Christian, there is a demonic target on your back. And Satan would have no greater desire than to destroy your life, to sift you like wheat, to destroy your family. And so because of this warfare, we have marriages that are falling apart, families that are disintegrating. Children walking away from the faith. Churches being divided. We are at war. And so we're called, Jesus says, to be vigilant, to be aware, to take up your sword. But it is not the sword of steel. Paul goes on in Ephesians 6 and says, rather, it's the sword of the Spirit. It is the Word of God which will do Satan the greatest damage. And so as we and our children go into battle, the question must be asked, How's your grip? How is my grip upon the Word of God? Are, are we able to use it defensively against the devil's schemes and opposing worldviews? And are we able to use it offensively as we speak the truth of God in love and mercy and grace to a lost and dying world? Are we equipped? Are we prepared? How is your grip on the Word of God? Paul told young Timothy, study. To show yourself approved, a workman who rightly handles the word of truth. How is our grip? You see, it's not only the spiritually proud who are vulnerable victims of Satan. It's the spiritually unprepared as well. And so Jesus says, take up the sword of the Spirit. You know, today we no longer live in Luke 9 where many people warmly embrace the Christian faith. 
where many people love to hear the name of Christ. Rather, we live in Luke 22, as Jesus prophesied. There is increased animosity against Christians, against Christ, and the church in our culture today. And we find ourselves living in Luke 22. And sometimes we're tempted in this cultural battle, in this spiritual warfare, to take up the arms of the flesh, to to respond evil with evil, fire with fire, insult with insult, flesh with flesh. But the Scriptures remind us our battle is different than that of those in our culture. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians, For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every caught that captive to the obedience of Christ. And the contrast of the weaponry can't be more stark. It's not engaged in anger and frustration and ugliness and vindictiveness. Rather, we engage in truth and in love and truth and in grace. We respond not with physical force, but with grace and truth. We respond not with a sword of steel, but with a sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. You know, this contrast in how we approach our culture compared to how the world approaches arguments. Came home to Becky and I as we were in uh, Istanbul, Turkey, visiting our youngest son a few years ago. We had the privilege to go to the Topkapi Palace. The Topkapi Palace boasts in holding and housing eight of the nine swords of Muhammad. I remember seeing one of his swords that was over five feet long. It was an impressive sword. I can imagine somebody wielding that thing in battle. But the Topkapi Palace also claims to have the staff of Moses. And so as we went into the other room after seeing eight of the nine of Muhammad's swords, we went to another room, and there in a case was the supposed staff of Moses. And when I saw it, I was, I was shocked and I was disappointed. It's a little skinny stick about four feet long. That, that was it. And we're thinking, what a, what a contrast of weaponry. Here is this impressive sword of Islam that has no power to change hearts, no power to grant grace, and this little skinny stick, the power of God to part the sea and to free his people, redeem his people from the land of of slavery. You know, the, today the church bears no arms, the church bears no sword, and it does not seek to move the kingdom forward by military might, but rather by what's perceived in weakness to the world, by little book, the Word of God, the sword of the Spirit, which is the power of God to change hearts, the power of God to grant grace the power of God to change lives and families and cultures and countries and one day will have its effect on the whole earth. That is the contrast before us, my friends. It is not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. This is the sword that Jesus calls us to take up and to do battle, the sword of the Spirit, the Word of the God, speaking the truth in grace and in love. 
But even as we take up this word in the midst of our culture, we need to remember Satan has put a target on the backs of the spiritual leaders of his church, of Christ's church. He's always adamantly opposed to the world mission of the church. But we have a promise here in this passage. Did you notice the promise? Something we must never forget. And that is that Jesus will gain the ultimate victory for Christ's church over Satan. Earlier in Peter's confession that Jesus was the Christ, Jesus went on to declare, on this rock, Petros, Peter, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against her. So often in our culture where we're feeling attacked and outnumbered, there's this temptation to sort of circle the wagons and to build our walls and to build our defenses and, and to go on the defense from the evils of the world and the attacks of Satan. But I want you to notice what Jesus said. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against my church. What are gates for? Gates are for defense. Gates are for keeping people out. Gates are for protection. And Jesus paints quite a different picture of the church huddled in a corner, wringing her hands in fear. Rather, Jesus turns the table and he says, it is hell that's in fear. It is hell that's on the defense. And my church, through my power, will overcome the evil one one day. One day, Paul concludes Romans, that the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet, O church. And he will do so by the grace of his power, because Christ is alone is the king and head of his church. Now I want you to notice in this passage how Jesus says he's going to do this. For I tell you that the scriptures must be fulfilled, he says in verse 37, as he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. Jesus is quoting from Isaiah 53, that great text dealing with the suffering servant that one day the Messiah would come and offer himself as an atoning sacrifice for sins, that he would come and the power of his blood would change lives and forgive sins and wipe away every transgression from his people. In fact, in a matter of hours, that prophecy would be fulfilled as Jesus would go on to offer himself as a sacrifice of atonement, as an offering for forgiveness, a payment for sins on the cross. Jesus is saying, I am guaranteeing victory over Satan, over your accuser, over sin and death and hell through the full forgiveness of the power of the cross. My blood has sealed the deal, and there will be victory for my church, and Satan will be rendered powerless to do you any eternal harm. That's why we read in Revelation chapter 12, of saints who overcome Satan. They overcame him. By what? They overcame him and conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. Jesus has secured the final victory for his church through his death, burial, and resurrection from the dead. And so let me ask you this morning, is that your testimony? is your only hope in Jesus' blood and righteousness. 
as your testimony that one day you'll be a part of the church that's claiming the blood of Christ for the forgiveness of sins. And through that testimony and union with Christ by faith, you'll be a part of that mighty throng that will overcome the evil one in the end. Is that your testimony? My rest is found in the finished work of Christ alone. But I want you to notice also how Christ promises ultimate victory for his church in view of Satan's attacks. Notice that in the meantime, as we await final victory, after warning Peter that Satan desires to own him and sift him like wheat, Jesus says this, But I have prayed for you. Peter, I know you're as weak as water. You might think you're strong and boast in your greatness and your strength, but Peter, I know better. But Peter, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And here Jesus does something wonderful here. He shifts from you, plural. He's just said, Satan desires to have y'all, all of you. And then he goes from that you, plural, and he looks at Peter, and he directs his gaze upon him and says, Peter, but I have prayed for you, singular. He looks at Peter, and he personally, individually, singularly promises, I'm going to plead on your behalf, Peter. And here we're introduced intimately into the intercessory ministry of our Savior. Had not Jesus died for Peter... Had not Jesus prayed for Peter and interceded for him, Peter's monumental failure would have been permanent and irrevocable. But the sovereign grip of God's grace would not let Peter go, and neither will it let you go if you are in Christ. Left to our own, we would never endure to the end. But Jesus has prayed for us. He continues to plead the merits of his blood. And we read in Hebrews of that intercessory ministry of our great God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, with these words, Consequently, he, that is Christ, is able to say to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to intercede for us. What a wonderful reminder in the midst of our trials and tribulations and constant temptations that we have one who sits at the right hand of the Father. He continues to plead the merits of his blood on our behalf. He continues to plead to the Father for the power of the Holy Spirit on our behalf. Here is one who has died for our denials and our weaknesses and our failures and our sin and he continues to plead on our behalf. And Jesus kept his promise to Peter. As Peter went off and he encountered his denied Jesus' name, even before a teenage girl, and he cursed to support that denial, Jesus ultimately did not allow Peter's faith to fail. And so we see the atoning ministry of Jesus, guaranteeing victory for the church. We see the intercessory ministry of Jesus guaranteeing victory for his church. And finally, we see the restoring ministry of our Savior. Peter's failure was monumental. Here is the key spokesman for the disciples. The one who first proclaimed, Thou art the Christ. 
and he boldly denies with cursing that he ever knew the man. Satan's fiery dart had found its mark. Yet did you notice Jesus promised Peter, and when you've turned again, Peter, when you return, you will deny me three times. You will monumentally fail. But Peter, when you return, encourage, strengthen my brothers. Later, Jesus would say it this way, Peter, feed my sheep. In the midst of monumental failure and weakness and feebleness and frailty and falling, Jesus says, I love, I delight to restore my stumbling sheep to a useful place of ministry within my kingdom. And how encouraging that ought to be for us as well, who feel daily the feebleness and frailty of our flesh and the faltering footsteps of our faith. That Jesus has died for our denials, our failure and our sin. That Jesus continues to intercede before the Father on our pitiful behalf. And that he delights to take failures like us, feeble and frail as we may be, and restore us to useful places in his kingdom. How encouraging to know no matter where we've been, no matter what we've done, no matter how great our failure, there's a useful place in the kingdom of God. How encouraging to know our Savior will not let us go. In 1987, after his admission to adultery and his moral failure, Gordon MacDonald stepped down from ministry. He announced his resignation as president of InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. His church lovingly took him through the process of church discipline. Godly men continued to pray with and for Gordon MacDonald. But more importantly, our Savior continued to pray for him. He continued to intercede on his behalf with his atoning ministry, with his intercessory ministry, and with his restorative ministry. Over time, God continued to work a wonderful work in his life, restoring beauty from ashes. His relationship with his wife was restored, with his children, with his church. And God has restored him to a place of usefulness in ministry. In 1984, Gordon MacDonald wrote a book, Ordering Your Private World. Four years later, after the mission of adultery, he wrote another book, Rebuilding Your Broken World. And that's the good news of the gospel. That's what Christ is about. He has died and shed his blood for sinners like us. He continues to plead the merit of his blood and pray for us and intercede for us in the midst of our weaknesses. And he does so before the throne of grace the right hand of his heavenly father and he continues to restore weak feeble frail faltering fear-filled saints with his restoring ministry and power of his spirit to useful place in the kingdom he does so because his great love for you his great love for us will never ever 
ever let us go. He did not let Peter go. He will not let you go. He will not let the least and the weakest among us go. Not those for whom he's died. Not those for whom he's continued to intercede. And he delights to restore. Let's continue to worship and adore and respond to the great love of our Savior that will not let us go. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you for praying for Peter, for restoring him, for dying for him. For in Peter's monumental failure, we see a reflection of ourselves, our own weakness and feebleness and frailty. And so, Lord Jesus, we want to thank you for praying for us, for dying for us, and restoring us to useful places within your kingdom. Thank you, Lord Jesus, you continue to plead the merit of your blood and the grace and strength of your Holy Spirit in our lives. And thank you that you will never, ever, ever, ever let us go. Not one that you've purchased by your grace and mercy and blood. And so grant us grace, we pray, to trust and rely upon your strength and not ours. As we enter into, engage in the spiritual battle, enable us to take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and to rest in the great King and Head of the Church, the Lord Jesus, who has secured the final victory for His church. May you receive the honor and the glory and the praise, and may we be strengthened and comforted in the reality and the fact that you will never ever let us go, that you will hold us fast. For this we give you thanks, we give you praise. In Jesus' name, amen.